Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome, everybody. And Kim and I today are going to talk more wine with you. We love exploring all things wine. The first topic is from Bon Appetit magazine. And I'm sure Kim hates my pronunciation of that. That one was fine. Okay, thank you. (laughs) And we're going to talk about a fermentation technique called carbonic maceration. And yes, geeky, but interesting to talk about winemaking methods and how there are different techniques out there in the world, Kim. Right. I I love talking about winemaking with people because even people who are wine drinkers sometimes don't necessarily know how wine is made. I talk to people a lot about how rosé is produced because it is sort of, I like to tell people that it starts its life as a red wine and ends its life as a white wine. But then there are these other types of winemaking techniques that produce wines of different styles. So carbonic maceration is used for making sort of light, fun, fruity, zippy red wines. It's not usually used with white wines. It's mostly a red wine produced production method. And with typical red wine making, what happens is you have all of your grapes and then you crush them and then leave the juice with the stuff to soak and ferment together. So you've got juice from the grapes, but then you've also got the skins and the seeds. Sometimes you have some of the stems left in there, but it's all mashed up together and you have this mass of stuff that then undergoes fermentation with stuff. stuff. I like stuff. Grapes stuff. Stuff. Animals. Insects. Oh, uh, <laughs> y- y- what what is what is it that they I forget what they what well they when they're call. picking grapes things get in there matter and... other ma- matter other than grapes yeah. I think they call it mog yeah um, yeah because sometimes so we're not I'm not talking but. With carbonic maceration, you leave the clusters of grapes whole and you put them relatively gently into a container, whatever winemaking vessel you're using. And then the winemaker will fill that container with carbon dioxide and then cap it. So what you have is a winemaking technique that doesn't rely on the juice and the skins fermenting together with the yeast that is either added or on the skins, but the fermentation happens from the inside of the berry. Out. It's a little wild. Mind blowing. I know. It's so cool. And when we first heard about this, I think in education, Kim, we, we, you had to actually see, I think for me, I had to see an image of how what's going on here, mm-hmm. you know? So you have to see it to really understand it, I So guess. it's almost this reverse winemaking process. So fermentation is starting from the inside of the berry. You don't have any oxygen in there because yeast generally needs oxygen to survive and to do its thing. And then once the grapes burst, then you have juice settling to the bottom of the container and then the carbon dioxide is starting to leave the container because you have all of this other action going on. And then your your regular fermentation starts happening because now you have juice at the bottom of the container that and, and these grapes at the bottom are starting to be crushed by the weight of everything on top of them. And then the yeasts pick up and start their fermentation action. So it's, yeah, it's sort of wild. So in the tank, the grapes, as you said, Kim, are actually crushing themselves from the mm-hmm. weight and they say from the weight of the alcohol that's being created and i thought that was kind of an interesting thing to think of so it's fermenting and as it's fermenting it's 
crushing itself right, down. It's like so it's interesting. Yeah. But what happens is the style of wine that is produced is different from if you are making a traditional style red wine. So what happens is you have this similarity regardless of grape variety and regardless of where the, the grapes are grown. Uh, because for a lot of winemakers, the place that the grapes come from really informs the resulting flavor of the wine. We call this terroir, sort of this sense or taste of place. But with wines made by carbonic maceration, one of the things things that its critics talk about is that it then makes wines that they all taste the same. So it doesn't matter if you're using Pinot Noir, or you're using Gamay, or using Tempranillo, or some other grape variety, or where it's being grown, that the style of the wine is always going to be this fresh, fruity, zippy. A lot of the flavors that I tend to get out of these wines are like fruit punch. A lot of people talk about banana. I get a lot of bubble gum. Oh, I knew you were um, going there. I yeah. knew you were going to bubble gum. You knew I was going to bubble gum. I get a lot of bubble gum. And for some reason, for me, banana and bubble gum are sort of related, but that's neither here nor there. But fruit punch, I tend to use that term because that's something that I think people understand, but it's not not necessarily always viewed as a serious style of wine. It's more, this article called it the pop music of wine, which I thought was was a really fun way to relate it to, to people because that's I think that's very understandable for people. Yeah, you can relate to that. The grape is called Gamay grape. That's mostly, I've never seen it associated with any other grape. Have you, Kim, other than I've seen a couple of California ones. Doing um, this process? Yeah, like but, the, like but the, they're grapes that are similar in style to Gamway to begin with. So like Valdegui from California. I was just going to say that's yeah. what I was thinking. Jay Lula yeah. makes one they, that's they're, very they're similar. But there are, I've seen I've seen some Tempranillo and I think I've seen a Pinot Noir as well. Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, this technique and we've always learned about is from the Beaujolais region of France and everybody will probably be familiar with Beaujolais Nouveau that comes out every year, Thanksgiving time, and this is the technique it's made by. It's it's fermented, it's bottled, and it's shipped, and it's on our shelves third week, November, during Thanksgiving. So if you time. are curious about what this wine tastes like, that is the most, in the most typical wine of this style. So it'll be the easiest for you, the consumer, to find. Go into your wine store and ask for a bottle of Beaujolais, and especially this Beaujolais Nouveau, uh, which is on the, sh- the store shelves now. Um, pick up a bottle of this and then pick up another red wine of a similar price range from another grape from another part of the world and taste them side by side. And hopefully you will get this, the pop music of wine, and maybe you'll be drinking it next to the classical music of wine. I don't know. But taste these different styles and figure out, you know, do you like it? Do you not like it? And how are they um, tasting different to you? Have we talked in the past, Kim, that this is a great entry level red for people who are maybe a white wine drinker or afraid of drinking? dry, unfruit red wines. That's this a is the really way to good start point, with. Mark. Yeah. Uh, people always ask us, you know, all right, I'm a white wine drinker, but I want to get into red wine. What do I start with? And these wines really are a great entry into the category of red wine. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find out more about me at my website, vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com. Great article out of the University of Melbourne in Australia talking about technology and how technology is changing the wine that we drink. This was great because it is a different aspect of wine than we usually talk about, which is technology in winemaking and in 
grape growing. I know we tend to get onto some of these kind of geeky topics sometimes, but I like to hear about these other things that are going on in the wine world that you don't necessarily taste in your glass. So it's it's cool for me to uh, to investigate these these other parts of our industry. Yeah, and I'm a big technology geek. <laughs> I like to see what's what's the trends. What are, what are they doing? And a lot of people don't think about when you're drinking a bottle, what is actually happening in these vineyards? How are they producing this all the time? And I think three of these items, Kim, were all related to drone technology. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Which has been very popular lately and how they take advantage of using drones in the vineyard. And a lot of it had to do with saving labor from not having to go walk your vineyards. You can just put the drone up and take a sky's eye view of what's going on and not having to walk 50 acres of of land at Mm -hmm. one time. So drones, I think, were three of the items in this they talked about. But another important aspect of this was using new photographic technology, which I thought was very interesting. So not only just taking a picture of the vineyard or being able to, you know, see with the naked eye what the grape plant, the fruit or the the plant vine looks like, but what's going on inside those berries? What is going on in that grape vine? Um, The first one that they mentioned, which incorporates both of these, so special cameras and drones, is for irrigation management, which is very important, especially because this was an Australian study. Water is a resource that is very tightly regulated in Australia because a lot of their growing conditions are very dry and very hot. So being able to see what vine is being stressed, either because of lack of water or too much water, is really important. So they were saying that special cameras on drones can sense when a grapevine has reached like an overly stressed level and then can figure out that, okay, this area needs to be irrigated a little bit or this one we need to pay, start paying a little bit more attention to. And then they can use the same technology to map where there might be pest issues in the vineyard. So you get this eagle eye view of your vineyard, you can use these special cameras and special photography to figure out what areas of the vineyards are having problems. And then you can really make sure that you're paying special attention to those places. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And you talked about the thermal images with the drones for water, but it's also helping them with pesticide use because they can control certain areas where they would have to use pesticides instead of spraying everywhere with the pesticides. So that's a a really good thing for that. And you mentioned the photo technology, which involved thermal imaging here, but in the wine world, they use some very interesting technology where when they're sorting the grapes, they're actually taking pictures as the grapes go by and they can pick out the bad grapes with photo technology. Uh-huh. So I think that's a really impressive thing being used. Inexpensive, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. But instead of someone hand sorting, they just fire them through a machine and let the machine find the undersized or defective grape and kick it out on its own. So that is being used after the grapes have been picked. And they're saying here that that can also be used while the grapes are still on the vine. So you can assess the ripeness of a grape by taking a picture of it with one of these special filters and then you can assess when you really want to pick it. And they talked a lot about what was just interesting and never thought about it, cell death because apparently grapes have to get to a certain level of over-ripeness to have a balanced flavor in the final wine. So sometimes when you're picking, you'll have underripe grapes, you'll have just perfectly ripe grapes, and then you'll have these older grapes that maybe have passed the point of, of being optimal. But we talk a lot about ripeness 
process and how do you assess that a grape is ripe? And we talk about sugar and we talk about acid, but then there's also what is called physiological ripeness, which has more to do with the ripeness of the seed inside the grape. Does the grape itself feel like I am now ripe enough and can be planted and then produce a new plant? Because, you know, obviously grapes are berries, grapes are fruit. So using this technology to determine when is the perfect time to pick those grapes is also really cool and something that we're using technology in order to have the final product be better and better and better for the consumer. And that's a huge time saving because they would have to go out into the vineyard, pull a grape, check the sugar level, Mm -hmm. or they'd send it to a lab and have it analyzed and come back. Meanwhile, there's time being taken there. So what if you go out in the vineyard, you pick it, it's already at its maximum. Now you have to get either a a crew there to pick it or get your machine ready to pick it. So this saves you time. You can see things developing with this technology and pick things at the optimal time to get the best sugar levels to ferment. Right. And I love that this article is associating using newer technologies in order to get a better wine in the bottle at the end. And for me, that what is most important is what does it taste like to you? Is this a good quality wine? Is it delicious? At the end of the day, it's a product that you are consuming and we we drink a lot of wine for pleasure. Does it taste good? And this is talking about we're using technology so that five steps down the road, we have a better tasting wine. And and I, I really like that a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the listeners probably think, yeah, I, I just care if it tastes good. Right, I don't I just care there's a drone good. that picked the grapes. <laughs> right. right. But what did you think about using technology for smoke detection? Because we've talked a lot about all these fires and the smoke issues right. on grapes. Using technology to detect which grapes have been tainted by smoke before going out and harvesting the whole Yeah, vineyard. I think that's another great use of technology to make sure that you're producing a good product at the end of the day. Because for some of these smoke-tainted grapes, and we see this in California, it's obviously a big problem in Australia with some fires that, that they have going on down there, that you could make a wine out of smoke-tainted grapes, and it tastes perfectly fine while you're making it. But two years down the line in the bottle, it suddenly starts to exhibit these flavors of having been smoked. It's They say that it tastes like leather and and like charcoal and like all these not very pleasant smoke tinged flavors. So being able to figure out at the very beginning that you know that a, a grape has this problem and then you just won't use it. So again, it comes back to what is our final product going to going to taste like? And we've heard horror stories from growers or farmers where they've had contracts to grow fruit and at the last minute they're canceling their contracts because they detected smoke on their grapes and they didn't want them. So in the past, you would have to send the grapes out to be analyzed to see if there's smoke on them. So interesting was the thermal image of the grapes can actually detect smoke changing the temperature of the grapes. So they can see which ones are affected. They could actually probably give a quantity of how much they're going to lose and still sell a good amount of the grapes and be backed up by this scientific right. technology. And I think that that's a, another good use of it. It's like, okay, if someone is buying, if you're a grape grower and not necessarily the winemaker and you have a contract with someone who's going to buy your grapes, now you have a way of proving, no, 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 I'm not just going to let you back out of it because you're saying, oh, everything is smoke tainted and we don't want to take that risk. Well, now here's the technology 
technology saying that, hey, my grapes are still good. So you can't get out of your contract just because you want to and you're using this as an excuse. It's like, no, this technology is showing that, hey, we still have good fruit here. And the last pot they mentioned that's also related to that, Kim, was estimating the yield or the quality of the grapes using technology that can predict how much crop they can get out. And this is using more analytics and sort of number crunching based on the historical data from those particular sites. But it's it's this great use of if you have all this data for however many years your vineyard has been producing fruit and you analyze temperature and weather conditions and associate it with certain yields and with certain quality levels, you can put all those numbers into a system and hopefully come up with some good idea of what current vintage and future vintage will be all about. So how long do you think before we see a brand based on the drone? You know, the drone mm. pick, drone I monitored. Right? Then they That's get the, interesting. They get the wine lover. They get the tech geek like myself. Maybe put some images on the label. Yeah, I'm totally going to get the tech geeks What the this. grapes look like before they were picked from a drone. <laughs> you know, I can see things happening with yeah. that technology-wise. Very cool. So there's always things that are changing and new and good positive uses of technology to improve the wine in your glass. You are listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow some older episodes of our show, go to iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine. Now we're going to talk about a fun article that was in the Huffington Post. And Kim, we, we don't really like to say this as wine educators, but five things you'll never need to know about wine to enjoy it. And once again, it's another one of those five things, 10 things. (laughs) We see a lot of these. And we're going to talk about them. So it's things that uh, I guess they're out there in the wine world. They're saying you don't really need to care about to enjoy wine. And I think that there's a lot, probably more things than these five. Or that you don't have to rely on these things in order to get full enjoyment out of the wine in your glass. And the first one that they talk about is critics' scores. You don't need to know what the score of a wine is in order to enjoy the wine. Or on the flip side, you don't have to only drink wines that have high scores in order to feel like you're getting a good quality wine. There's a difference, I tell people, a difference between good wines, quote unquote good wines, and wines that you like. If you are happy drinking an inexpensive, commercially, maybe pretty mass produced wine, but you really like the flavor of that wine and that's your go-to and you're super happy with it, then by all means, enjoy that wine. I would say try other things as well and expand your palate, but don't feel like just because it's an inexpensive, pretty, you know, commercial wine out there that you should be embarrassed to like that wine. If you like it, then you like it. On the other side of that, just because a wine has 95 points doesn't mean that you are automatically obligated to like that wine. Critics have years and years of experience and lots and lots of wines under their belts and their palate is probably very different from yours. You guys aren't necessarily going to like the same wines. So just because it is a critically acclaimed wine doesn't necessarily make it the right wine for you. I liked how they explained the critic scores to Kim saying, you know, trust your own palate. I always believe everybody has their own profile. Trust your own profile. Like you said, what you like and is what you like, right? The, so, cr- the crux yeah. of that too is that though, how do you figure out what you like? Taste, 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 taste. taste. And I don't, you know, personally, and people may be shocked by this, but I do not care if you tell me what it's rated. Because like you said, Kim, you 
have your own style because someone else likes that style and rates it highly doesn't mean you're going to like it or agree with it because you don't like that style. So I don't care if it's a hundred point wine. If I don't like that style, I'm not going to like it no matter what. It might be the best rated at that style, but I hate when people try to sell me wine or recommend wine only on the fact that it's rated a certain score. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you put scores up in your store? I put my own scores. Okay. And the, the way I do that, that's my profile. So the way that score is, if you tell me you like a certain wine, I can match it to that profile. And I'll say, this is what I think of that wine. This is what I score. But if you don't like cherry or you don't like aromatics, you won't like this wine type of thing. So what are you, you, you're nodding like... I don't tend to go by score either. And when I began my career in wine, I worked in a store where we did not put scores up. Um, We did not put up shelf talkers. We relied, the consumer, the customer had to rely on us, the staff, who had tasted a lot and lot and lot of wine of what we had in the store. They had to rely on us to help them find a new bottle or if they wanted to buy something that they didn't necessarily have familiarity with, a new grape variety, a new region. So I don't necessarily go by the whole score thing either. But it's an easy way for people to start. If you are looking for a wine and you have no idea where to start, those numbers can be can be kind of helpful. Is a, a 92-point wine going to be better for you than an 88-point wine? Not necessarily, but it gives you a, a starting point, I think. I totally agree with that. And most of the time, if you do see a critic score, it has a description. And that's the key for me. And like you said, Kim, the personal tasting notes is what you need. And probably 95% of the stuff in my store is my own personal notes people probably can't read them, but it's a it's a guide to me to help you get what you're looking for. So next they talked about five things you don't need to know uh, about wine to enjoy was sulfur or sulfites. And one of our top 10 things we get asked about a lot. We talk about sulfites a lot. And the whole thing that they were going on here is you don't have to worry about the sulfites because A, sulfites are in a lot of other foods that you don't even know that they're in there and you don't have a reaction to those. So therefore, you're not going to have a reaction to the very small amount of sulfites that are added to wine. And also all wine does contain sulfites because winemaking during fermentation, it's a natural byproduct of the fermentation process. So even an organic wine, if a producer adds absolutely no added sulfites, there is still going to be a little bit there because it, it just naturally is produced during the winemaking process. But that being said, you know, I talk to people a lot about, all right, you think you have an issue with the sulfites, but do you eat dried fruit? You know, do you eat frozen vegetables? vegetables? Do you eat canned soup? Those things have way more sulfite added to them than than wine does on any given day. So it's probably if you're having a reaction to something in the wine, it's probably not the sulfites. You don't have to be scared of them. Yeah. And the most common things I'm getting a headache from the sulfites. And once again, there's no scientific, there's no medical evidence that sulfur causes headaches. Uh, some like less than 1% of the population gets allergy reactions to allergic reactions to it. So don't worry about it. We totally agree. (laughs) Next, they talk about the winemaker and not to worry about the winemaker to enjoy wine. And interesting, they related it to a chef saying, you don't care who the chef is if you like the food, which I thought was kind of a weird thing. I want to know who's really cooking the food. Yeah, it was like the equivalent of the celebrity winemaker with the celebrity chef. And I'm like, huh, okay. But that there is sort of this cult of personality of celebrity chefs that has popped up over the last couple of decades. And in 
sort of interesting to transition that to wine because whenever wineries want to highlight good quality wines, they will invariably talk about who the winemaker is. But nobody really, you know, knows winemakers. So it's, I don't know. I thought this was a, an interesting one to put out yeah. here. And that's a great point. No one needs to know the because you usually can't find who the winemaker is. You pick up a bottle. Right. Very rarely does it say Joe Smith sometimes made this wine. Sometimes it will, though. Right? Sometimes it will. And sometimes that person is even associated with that wine. Right. right? It's so, like it's back to the celebrity chef thing. Right. It's like, yeah, you know, this this famous chef might have their name on the restaurant, but they're not actually in the kitchen doing the cooking. They have this whole staff of chefs that are doing the cooking for them. They may have been the inspiration for them, but the day-to-day cooking is going on by somebody else back there. So winemaking can be similar. There are lots of hands that are involved in that winemaking process. I think it's funny that I've never had anybody ask me when they're purchasing a wine, can you tell me about the winemaker? No, I me think, neither. <laughs> right? I think they assume like if you buy a Coppola wine that Francis Coppola is the winemaker. Oh, do you, right? oh, do you, so don't you think, think it's the other side? It's like, yeah. oh, his name is on I here. I think Therefore. they're relating the brand to the winemaker, Probably. which 99.99%, no. they have nothing to no, do with it, right? Just it, like you said, the celebrity wine. celebrity wines, you know? chef. You know, like, Sting's not making the wine, right? right? <laughs> just so. like Emeril Lagasse is not making your meal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next they talked about the vintage. You shouldn't care about the vintage or the year the grapes were harvested to enjoy the wine. We got this question last night in our wine class. We were talking about European wine labels and European wines, and the topic of vintage did come up. I really like how they phrased this, and they said it is because of technology and growing grapes and how grape growers are now able to use all of these new tools that it's now no longer an issue of did you have a good year or did you have a bad year, but did you have an easy year or did you have a difficult year? And so in those difficult years, winemakers have new tricks, new things that they can do to sort of mitigate the the problems and still turn out good quality wine. So it's less that this vintage was horrible, don't drink the wine from this year, and it's more of a dealing with the hand that you've been dealt. How do we make the best possible wine out of the grapes that we now have this year? So in, interesting change in philosophy. And you had a great example of how not to worry about vintage in this, Kim, when you were talking about champagne. All the non-vintage champagne, it's blended years, it's blended grapes, and people enjoy it. And they yeah. never even think that, they never even look on a champagne bottle to see if it's a vintage on there. They just assume, right? I, I would assume they yeah. assume it's from a certain year, but it's probably the best example of non-vintage wine that people enjoy. Right. We're, I mean, we're always drinking champagne. People are always drinking champagne, whether it came from a quote-unquote good year or a quote-unquote bad year, there still is consistency in that bottle. So so, the house you know, style is always right. the same. So you really, so these days we really have to worry less about vintage. Now this is more for everyday wine drinking. If people are buying wine, putting down wine, aging wine, having it for an investment, that's a different kettle of fish. So for this, we're talking more about your everyday enjoyment. If you have a $15 bottle of wine, it matters a whole lot less if it's a 2016 versus 2017 versus 2018. Most wine that you purchase, especially in that price range, really is meant for immediate consumption. So don't worry so much about what what the vintage on the the bottle is. Yeah, those people that are investing in wine, it's a different type of enjoyment because it's it's a lot of time it might be financial gain or because you have a lot of money, but Mm -hmm. they enjoy it different way, I guess.
guess so you that's could not say, to right? say don't pay attention to how old a wine is because that's different how old it is meaning how much time has that wine spent in the bottle as opposed to the vintage and how what were the characteristics of the weather that particular year so that that's a little different you know i can say 2015 was just as good as 2016 but in 10 years you know that wine might be too old to drink or it might be really really good depending on where that wine came from so we're not necessarily talking about the age of the wine but more just the personality of that year so the fifth thing kim they talked about that you never need to know to enjoy wine it was actually almost related to the first thing yeah, about you, critic you, scores we're, right we're so kind of rounding right back to the right beginning back there. and they're saying don't worry about the mass uh, marketing tasting notes which is a lot associated with the score usually but the generic marketing material would just say you know this is a lively wine it's fruity you have it with fish hints of apple yeah or, just very basic descriptions and once again i firmly believe and i think you do as well it's more what is a an actual person who's selling you that wine think of it more than these mass marketed materials and you see these shelf talkers everywhere that are used that's what i consider a mass marketing material point of sale that's generated by a corporation more than an individual right so it's more of a marketing getting item not necessarily to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth about the wine but to do it in a way that is very appealing to the consumer to try to get you to buy that bottle Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. We invite you to visit our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine and to check out past podcasts on iTunes under The Wonderful World of Wine. Have a great week. Wine, wine.